Hello, and welcome to the Garrett Ashley Mullen Show. I am, as I always am, Garrett Ashley Mullen, your host. And today we're going to talk about truth and the truth. And there's four main points I want to hit. I'll tell you up front, and then you can keep score at home, whether I hit those four points, how much time I allot to each point. And uh, I want you to tell me how I did in this episode if you're keeping score at home. So the first point I want to hit in this episode is that with regards to the 2020 presidential election or any of the smaller races or more local races or uh, state house and Senate races across this country, the 2020 election here in the United States of America, there are so many allegations of voter fraud right now, and there are an equal number of dismissals that there is no evidence of voter fraud. There is, depending on who you ask, evidence of widespread voter fraud, and there is no evidence of widespread voter fraud or voter fraud of any kind. Now, we may not now or ever know the truth of these allegations of widespread coordinated conspiracy to commit voter fraud in the 2020 election, but we do know that the media is lying to us. That's the first point we're going to cover in this episode. The second point we're going to hit is that lies, deceit, and manipulation are not new things. There is no new thing under the sun. What we find is that some of us were not paying attention and we didn't realize how common these things are to the human condition and to human history. Recorded history is replete with lies, deceit, and manipulation. What has maybe perhaps changed is that we have found more advanced means of perpetrating these things in our day. So that's the second point we're going to hit in this episode. The third point is that moral equivalence is a kind of dishonesty. I want to get at that and how moral equivalence erodes our commitment to the truth or Perhaps it's the cart and the horse question of whether our eroded uh, value in the truth or commitment to knowing the truth, telling the truth, and acting on the truth comes first, whether that commitment is eroded first and then we start drawing moral equivalence, or whether our moral equivalence drawn falsely is something that erodes the truth. But I want to get into our refusal to observe distinctions between wisdom and folly, between virtue and vice, between truth and falsehood, and between righteousness and wickedness. When we draw moral equivalence unfairly between multiple parties in a conflict, are we not becoming unjust judges? Are we not answering as Pontius Pilate did where he asked Jesus, what is truth? So that's the third point we're going to cover in this episode. The fourth point we're going to cover is In the form of a question, do we give some types of bad behavior or bad behavior from certain people and groups a pass for the purpose of either advancing or protecting our interests? In other words, do we overlook misbehavior when it comes from certain places, from certain people, from certain groups of people, or when it it is certain kinds of bad behavior? Do we overlook that? Do we just accept that that is the way that it is, that that's just the way that they operate, that that's just the way things have to be? And do we do so because we're either trying to advance or protect our interests? We're afraid of the cost 
that uh, we would have to pay if we spoke up or if we resisted that bad behavior. Or we think we can get a benefit. We can get ahead. We can make friends with those people and make an alliance with those people to benefit ourselves if we overlook their bad behavior and pretend we didn't see anything, we didn't hear that, and we know nothing about it. So anyway, let's dive right in to the first point. We may not now or ever know the truth of these allegations, that there was widespread and coordinated fraud perpetrated in the 2020 election, and that it was enough to swing the election in favor of, at the top of everyone's list, Joe Biden, former vice president and Democrat candidate for president, not president-elect just yet. But was it enough to swing the election in his favor? Would he have won without voter fraud? I think every honest person that I've heard on the right among conservatives admits that there is some fraud going on in every and any election. There are indisputably instances where dead people vote, and that is to say someone else using a dead person's information voted extra. They voted extra more than they actually have any legal right to, and that is fraud. Uh, You have an admission that there are instances in which perfectly valid legal ballots for a competing candidate are trashed, they are tampered with, they are not counted, they are mysteriously misplaced. And we don't know exactly how many those instances of fraud add up to. We don't know how many votes uh, can be rightly attributed to fraud, either votes added to the tally for one candidate or subtracted from the tally for the other candidate. We just don't know. We know that some amount of fraud is going on. And The conservatives who want this to just kind of move on, they want us to accept that Biden is the president-elect. A lot of them have a significant problem with Trump, and they didn't vote for him. They didn't support him. They never liked him to begin with, and they had a hard time admitting that he did anything good whatsoever. Not all, right? Not all. There are Trump-supporting Republicans and conservatives who have said, nobody would be happier than I if these allegations of voter fraud proved to be true and significant and sufficient to overturn the alleged results of the 2020 election. I hope that happens. I just don't think it will. Andrew Clavin over at The Daily Wire is one who has uh, come out on that side of things where he says, I, you know, for years, I felt like Trump was a belligerent, toxic, you know, he was a dividing person. He was, he was a divisive person. He was abrasive and he alienated too many voters in the suburbs. And I was expecting that was going to happen and that he was going to lose the election as a result. And so that's what I think happened here. I don't think that there was enough voter fraud that certainly could be found to be voter fraud at this point. With the time that we've got left, to overturn the results of the election. And so we kind of just have to give it to Biden at this point. I could be wrong. So Clavin has taken that position, and certainly Ben Shapiro seems to be of that mindset that there may be fraud here going on, but we need to resist stubbornly wishful thinking with regards to this idea that we can successfully challenge in court the results of the 2020 election. We need to resist that stubbornly because if this is just the way that it's going to be if Biden is going to be president for the next four years or however many years before Kamala Harris assumes the reins of power, which is probably going to be immediately whether or not he's still in the picture. 
If that's going to be the way that it is, we need to just accept that. We need to not be in denial about it because there's work that needs to be done right now and we'd best get to it. And there is a kind of wisdom to that if this is a lost cause, if this is a foregone conclusion, if there is no hope of overturning the results of the 2020 election, supposedly, if you listen to the media, if you listen to the pollsters, et cetera, et cetera. It's interesting to note that the pollsters were way off. If you had been listening to the pollsters all along the way leading up to this election, you'd have thought that Biden would have won it in a landslide. The fact that it was even close enough that we can be talking about legal challenges in court is a surprise to everybody, supposedly. But then again, Trump wasn't supposed to win in 2016 either. So should we put much weight on political commentators taking a conservative position? They're conservatives, and so they take conservative positions on what they estimate the chances are that we're going to overturn these results in court. Should we put over much confidence in their appraisals, particularly when the information that they base their commentary off of is so often reactionary to what the mainstream media is putting out there and what they're not putting out there. And that leads me to the point that I want to make and the assertion that I want to make and I want to focus on because I don't know. I don't know any better than Ben Shapiro or Andrew Clavin whether this is going to be overturned in the courts and whether we're going to get four more years of Trump instead of four more years of Biden-Harris or Harris-Biden. I don't know that, and you don't know that, unless you're watching this a year from now and you've seen how this thing shook out. Nobody at this point in time knows how this is going to shake out, except for God alone. But but even though we don't know whether these allegations of widespread coordinated conspiracy to commit voter fraud in the 2020 election are true, we do know that the mainstream media is lying to us. And we've known that for quite some time. That's not a scandalous thing to allege. That's not a scurrilous accusation. I'm not slandering or bearing false witness against anybody to say that. You know it. I know it. We all know it. The media knows it. And they just rely on enough people being persuaded by their brainwashing scheme that they'll get the results they want. They'll get the outcome that they desire and that they are ambitious for. And that leads us to a very thorny problem. And that is, how do we learn the truth about anything? You know, whether there was or there was not evidence uh, sufficient to overturn the results of the election, you wouldn't necessarily know it from listening to the mainstream media any more than you would know that Biden was going to win in a landslide. He was supposed to win a landslide victory over Trump. He did not. You know, there's so many other stories in recent years and for a long, long time have been hogwash, have been absolute hogwash. You know, it's worse to be misinformed than it is to be uninformed because misinformed, we are confident of a great many things which are just simply not so. We become confident, we become conceited, we become uh, impossible to reason with or talk with about these things. And then once we figure out we were misinformed, very often the outcome is we become jaded and we become cynical and it becomes very difficult to convince people of the truth even. And we become like Pontius Pilate where we ask, what is truth? Really, what is truth? What does it matter, right? I can't know the truth. And even if I could know the truth, it wouldn't amount to a hill of beans worth of difference because things are going to go the way that they're going to go. Now, in the secular world, very often progressives respond to accusations that are perfectly valid, perfectly 
accurate. They respond to true reporting of events with claims of fake news or misinformation. Kevin Roos over at the New York Times recently tweeted that the top 10 trending stories on Facebook news stories, outbound links to the Daily Wire and Breitbart and uh, the Blaze and other outlets like that, Epoch Times, others, that they were part of a misinformation campaign. And when he was challenged on this, Kevin Roos, tech writer at the New York Times, responded that stories can be entirely factually accurate and still be part of a misinformation campaign. And what he meant by that was that if the facts are challenging the narrative, then the facts are the problem. The facts need to be changed. The facts need to be forgotten about. The facts need to be suppressed. And so much of fact-checking, so-called, this Orwellian trend in uh, modern times in the past four years, really, fact-checking very often, from what I've seen, amounts to someone taking a perfectly true statement and saying it's mostly false because it doesn't have the context that we want to color your impression with. And so we're going to include this context whether or not it changes the fact and whether that context requires additional context. We're going to include this context and then we're going to say that was fake news, what you believed about this, and then we have the blank check now to dismiss you and uh, a pox on you in your house and, and just go away. You have no credibility anymore because our fact checkers said so. And social media giants like Facebook, like Twitter, have hired these supposedly independent third-party fact checkers. And when you do your digging and you look at and you try and fact check the fact checkers, who these third-party fact checkers are, who these outlets are, they are, to a man jack, left-leaning progressive uh, outlets and persons. They're in the bag for the progressive ideology. They're in the bag for the progressive worldview and agenda. And so the kind of fact-checking they do is exactly the kind of fact-checking that Kevin Roos would like them to do, which is even if a story is factually correct, they're going to twist and spin those facts or dismiss them out of hand so that they get the narrative intact on the other end, so that you have either no voice with which to challenge them anymore, and they can censor your content. They can put little writers on your posts. Uh, they can hide your posts. They can shadow ban you. They can assume control over your account. None of these, by the way, are just the uh, perverse imaginations of a paranoid person in me. Uh, all of these things are substantiated by ample testimony from insiders at Twitter, at Facebook, at Google, at YouTube, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, people that work on the inside of these companies who say, yeah, we do that. We've been doing it for years. You know, we can ban somebody and hide their content and they don't even realize that their content isn't being seen by their circle of friends, family, and uh, associates. They have followers. They might have hundreds of followers. They might have thousands. They might have tens of thousands. They might have hundreds of thousands of followers. And all of a sudden, they don't realize their content isn't getting out there. Nobody is seeing it. Or if they're seeing it, it's getting buried deep in the algorithm. It's getting buried deep to where by the time somebody sees it, they've seen 10 other stories, 10 other opinions, 10 other analyses, which have colored and, and shaped their emotional state to where what you just shared isn't going to have any effect, or it's not going to have the desired effect for which you shared it. So we know that the mainstream media that you would watch on TV or you would listen to on the radio, or that now you can go to their websites and you can see their content 
on the web as well. We know that that media has been lying to us for quite some time. We now have social media working in cahoots, uh, coordinating with these outlets. And that is a kind of fraud which is far, far more dangerous and far more comprehensive than the kind of fraud that's being alleged in the 2020 election. We have to be, we have to be aware that we are being lied to, are being lied to in a multitude of ways. And if we don't care about that, then we really don't care about the truth. The truth is not a value to us. We are, in the words of Pontius Pilate, asking, what is truth? What does it matter, right? Better that one man should die than that a whole nation be destroyed. And we're acting that way, and innocent people are being condemned. We are being silenced. We are being negated. We are being canceled out. And maybe we don't think that that's a big problem. Maybe we think that that's a foregone conclusion, and we're okay with it because we don't think it's going to be any other way, no matter how hard we try. Maybe we're fatalistic about it. And maybe part of our fatalism <laughs> is because we don't realize how much we and the people that we look to for influence and guidance have been shaped by this kind of information and misinformation, this kind of propaganda for years and years. It's a scary thought. It's a you know rabbit hole of seemingly endless depth and complexity. But I think it's important that we at least recognize that we know the media is lying to us. And we have to ask a question next of what do we do now that we know that? Now that we know the media is lying to us, now what? I'm going to come back to that question here at the end, but I want to move on to my second point. My second point is that lies, deceit, and manipulation are not new things, right? As we realize we're being lied to, as we realize just how dark and sinister this is, it really needs to not shock us. It needs to not surprise us. Now, there's a couple of responses that I've seen as I've shared content to social media, as I've talked with people over the years about allegations coming from, for instance, Project Veritas, where Project Veritas will find a whistleblower at Facebook, at uh, CNN, at the New York Times, at you know, wherever. They'll find a whistleblower or they will go undercover and they will talk with somebody who doesn't realize that they are the opposition. They'll have an undercover investigative reporter who goes and talks with somebody who thinks they're talking candidly to a like-minded ally. And it really turns out in the end that it is a Project Veritas reporter with a hidden camera and a microphone. They're wired up. The content goes on the internet and you can watch it. You can watch these people in their own words bragging about the schemes and manipulations that they engage in. And these things very often disturb and unsettle people who had a false illusion of the world and the way that it is and the way that people are. They had, a, they had another idea of what human nature is and the nature of reality. And this upsets them. And it upsets them in, I think, a similar way to the traitor in The Matrix. And if you've never seen The Matrix, there is a character who is on this uh, futuristic sci-fi ship called the Nebuchadnezzar. The Nebuchadnezzar is piloted by Morpheus or captained by Morpheus. And Morpheus and his band of refugees, outlaws, whatever, freedom fighters, they're trying to liberate humanity from the machines. And the machines have constructed this AI, artificial intelligence, very complex world that everyone is plugged into. Their brains are plugged in by cables to this artificial construct called the Matrix. And the purpose of this is to keep people pacified, to keep them subservient, to keep them plugged in so that their electrical uh, charge can be harvested. They can be used as a kind of battery that then fuels the machines and, and keeps them running. And so 
you have this imaginary world that Morpheus and his team, they're trying to go into from time to time. And they're trying to find people who they can wake up. They can tell the truth to. Those people are going to listen, and they're going to be extracted. They're going to be saved from this system of slavery and oppression that they don't even realize that they are subject to. Now, I'm not going to base my theology off of the matrix. I'm not going to base my worldview and my my life's mission off of the matrix. But there's this interesting little picture of how people can be in this character who reminds me of Judas. He reminds me of Judas in the Gospels. He is part of this team of freedom fighters. And at a certain point, he realizes that he doesn't like the real world. He doesn't like living in this world where they're constantly on the run for their lives. He enjoyed the matrix better. He knows it's a lie, but it was comfortable. It was a comfortable, easy life. He wants to go back to the matrix. And so he offers to the machines, to these uh, special AI programs called agents. He meets with them. He offers them the opportunity to capture Morpheus and his crew and to you know, torture them for information so that they can find where this city is. Zion is what it's called. There's a lot of religious uh, language scattered throughout the matrix. And he offers to sell Morpheus and the crew of the Nebuchadnezzar out for his 30 pieces of silver. In the, in the case of the matrix and this trader, his 30 pieces of silver is he wants to be plugged back into the matrix. He wants to have his memory wiped to where he doesn't remember the real world. He wants to be set up with a very, very nice, comfortable existence where he's very wealthy. He has everything provided for him. He's very comfortable. He wants to pleasure himself for the rest of his meaningless existence. And that will be his reward for betraying his friends and his allies. And so it doesn't work out for him not to give anything away. He ends up not succeeding. Some people die. He's among them. But this issue that is at stake in the way that he responds versus the way that Neo responds. Neo is the main character. He's the hero of the story. He's the one that gets rescued out. And, and through his eyes, you see you know, both the before and the after that there is this artificial construct called the Matrix. And uh, he lives within it, oblivious or suspicious, but but not really fully aware of what it is that he inhabits and, and how it came to be. He wakes up from that, and all of a sudden, he finds out he's the chosen one, or he's told that he's the chosen one. He doesn't believe it necessarily at first. He tries it. He tries to act like he's the chosen one. It doesn't quite work. And then in the words of Yoda from Star Wars, do or do not, there is no try. He stops trying, and he just does it, and he turns out to be the one. And so anyway, not to go on and on about the Matrix, but there are a lot of people who are in this comfortable illusion that the world is full of good people and that people are inherently good and that the media is our friends and that they are telling us the truth. And even if they're not, it's it's a mistake. It's an accident. They're really good people. They wouldn't lie to us on purpose because, I mean, just why, right? Why would you believe that about people if you think that they're lying to us? That really says something about you. You're a bad person. You've got a really corrupt, twisted mind. Maybe you weren't raised right. Maybe you had some trauma in your childhood. You know, maybe you just, you know, need to get over your psychological issues and join the rest of us in blithely accepting this numb existence in which we just believe whatever we are told. None of these things are new if you're a student of history. The lies, the deceit, the manipulation, none of these things should come as a surprise to a Christian who's familiar with his Bible. There have been lies and deceit and manipulations ever since the serpent came to Eve in the garden. In fact, that's what started 
humanity down the road of falling is you get the the serpent coming to Eve and saying, hath God said, right? Calling into doubt the truth, calling into question the truth and causing humanity to think things that that were not true, like you can become gods, right? Well, yes, in a certain sense, you become godlike in that you have this thing now in your head, this awareness of good and evil. You know good and evil. The only reason you know good and evil is because now evil has been introduced in the form of your disobedience. You know good and evil because you realize, by contrast, that the way you were behaving better was when you were obedient and you were ignorant of this corruption now that you've introduced into creation. You have fallen and creation has fallen with you and now there's death and dying and suffering and a curse. And now Adam and Eve have to wear clothes and not just leisurely stroll through the garden and keep it and tend it and name animals and eat fruit. Now they've got to wear clothes. They've got to be ejected from the Garden of Eden. And now life is hard. Now childbirth is painful. Now work is toilsome, is tiresome, is resistant. And it all started with a lie. It started with a lie from the devil, from the adversary, from Satan. And this is not a new thing. I mean, you fast forward to just a little while after they're ejected from the garden. And Cain kills his brother Abel. He murders brutally his brother Abel. And he murders him because he believes a thing which is not true, which is that his sacrifice has been rejected because Abel's was accepted. He wasn't rejected. His offering to God was not rejected because Abel's was accepted. His offering was rejected because there was something off in his heart. His heart was not in it. It was not a sacrifice given from a point of obedience and reverence and love for God. It was a sacrifice given that was not acceptable to God because God desires obedience rather than sacrifice. And the sacrifice is only meaningful insofar as it comes from a heart of obedience. It started, this murder started with lies, deceit, and manipulation. You fast forward through the history of any country, of any people, and you will find lies, deceit, and manipulation. In fact, if you read Sun Tzu, you'll find in his words that all warfare is deception. And so that's what happens is people make war on each other. Nations make war on each other. People strive for power and jockey for position. And they lie. They lie to throw their competition off the scent. They lie to destroy people who stand in their way. They lie to get what they want or to avoid getting what they don't want. I'm in trouble. There's a problem here. I'm going to blame shift. I'm going to have a scapegoat. I'm going to point the finger at somebody else who is not guilty. And then all of a sudden they take the punishment and I don't have to, and I can go on with my merry, happy life. None of these things are new, but what is relatively new, at least as far as we know, is the means of perpetrating these things, these lies, deceit, manipulation. In our day, it is extremely easy to spread lies. And you can do it if you have a sophisticated network of social media accounts. You can do it if you have a sophisticated network of television stations, if you have a sophisticated network of radio stations. It's amazing how few cans actually control so many of our media outlets. So many of the local TV stations and radio stations are actually parts of broader networks that were gobbled up by these big conglomerates They're owned by a very few people. And those very few people can create impressions in the minds of 
a lot of Americans, for instance, because we're in America or I'm an American, they can create these false impressions very easily by just sending out a memo to their network. And all of a sudden, you create an echo chamber. You, you have at your command thousands of voices who are amplified via technology to the point where they reach millions of ears. And then those millions of ears turn into millions more voices who then go out into broader society. They go to work, they get together with family, they talk with their friends, and they start talking about what they heard in the news, what they saw on the news, what they think they saw, what they think they heard, and what they think it means. And all of a sudden, you've got this echo chamber. Everybody's talking about something which started with a memo, which started with a directive from a very few people who had an interest. It's very handy. It's very useful to be able to control the levers of power via information. You control the flow of information and you control everything. Knowledge is power and you can withhold power to stop you from people if you can withhold from them the information that they would need to hold you accountable. This idea that people lie should not come as a surprise to us. People lie. There would not be a need for a commandment against bearing false witness against your neighbor if there was no temptation to bear false witness against our neighbor. If that was not something that is common to man, that man struggles with, this temptation to destroy the reputation of other people, we would not be prohibited from doing it. There would be no need to, right? Just like I don't have to tell you, you know, hey, you know what? You, you stay off the moon, right? You better not go flying. Don't raise your arms up and go flying off to the moon. I don't have to tell you that because you're incapable of doing it. You probably don't have any special interest. Even if you were capable of doing it, maybe you would. I don't know. Anyway, not the point. But we do have an ability and we do have an inclination, a sinful desire, very often as human beings living in a fallen world, descended from a fallen race in Adam to lie and to deceive and to manipulate and to bear false witness. And so when that's the case, and when that's true of us as individuals, tell me this, why would it be any less true if an individual happens to own a network by which he's able to do all of that all the more effectively? Why? Why would that be beyond the pale? Why would that be surprise to anybody? Why would that be shocking? It really shouldn't be. So moving on, the third point that I want to get to is that moral equivalence is a kind of dishonesty. And what I mean by moral equivalence is so many of my conversations with people have been in recent months and years when I talk about politics. Everybody does it. Oh, yeah, both sides are the same. Republicans and Democrats, they're all the same. Uh, They're all liars. They're all cheats. They're all dishonest. They're all manipulating us. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're all corrupt. Yeah, Joe Biden's corrupt. Yeah, so they all are. So what? I want to take this out of the political, and I want to talk a little bit about other spheres in which that's not a satisfactory or sufficient or responsible conclusion to draw. It's not a, it's not a satisfactory, it's not a fruitful place to land and to camp out. It might be true to a certain degree, but it's also false to a very large extent. Let's take the women, for instance. I work with a couple of guys that are single, young guys, too much younger than me, but a few years younger than me, who are single. And if they have a girlfriend, they don't talk about her. Uh, They're certainly not engaged to be married, and they're certainly not married. And I've given advice to one of them in particular. I said, hey, Daniel, you should really find yourself a wife. And Daniel laughed. He said, that is the worst advice. You're a smart guy, but that is the dumbest advice you've ever given me. 
And that is not a good idea. Do you know what women are like? And he proceeds to tell me. tells me about his misadventures in trying to date and trying to uh, find a woman. And having one gal that he was dating uh, tell him that it's going to be a problem if he believes in God. She asks him point blank. He takes her out to dinner. She asks him, do you believe in God? He says, yeah, I do. She says, well, that's going to be a problem because I don't. I think that's all nonsense. I think it's all made up. And he says, well, yeah, I guess if it's going to be a problem for you, it's going to be a problem because I believe in God. I can't just not believe in God because you don't like the idea of God. You don't like religion. You don't like theism or whatever. So it's going to be a problem. He said so much of the way that most women are is colored by feminism. It's colored by this idea that, you know, if you even open a door for me or pull out a chair or are nice, right? If you're, if you're just trying to be a man and chivalrous and be protective and, and all that, that you're supposedly oppressing this woman. You're being condescending or you're being a chauvinist. or you're, You know, they don't know the difference between chivalry and chauvinism. And they think that chivalry is chauvinistic. This idea that you would protect or watch out for or help women if you're a man, they think is beneath them and it's insulting. He says, I can't go for that, right? It would be better for me to just be single. And it reminds me of the proverb that says, you know, better to dwell in the corner of the house than to live with a quarrelsome woman. And uh, so maybe he's not entirely wrong. And yet I know that there are women out there who are not that way because I'm married to one. And so how unfruitful would it have been? It literally, literally would have been unfruitful. I wouldn't have seven children now. I wouldn't have a marriage. If I had said way back when, you know, we're coming up on 14 years on the 25th. Today is the 23rd of November. So day after tomorrow is my 14th wedding anniversary with my wife, Lauren. If I had said, well, all women are the same. All women are dramatic and difficult and they nag and they're feminists anymore. And I just, no, 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 thanks. You know, that would be highly unfortunate and there would be no human race if we were all like that. So not to criticize my friend, Daniel, Daniel, if you're listening, forgive me for using you as an illustration, but we don't draw moral equivalents like that because it's not fair and it's not productive because There might be a trend and a lot of people might be a certain way. That doesn't mean we should give up on there being some people who are not that way or even if everybody is that way and everybody has that inclination and that's the zeitgeist, that's the spirit of the age, that's the trend, that's the the waters that we're swimming in right now. Swim upstream for crying out loud. Rise, kill and eat, conquer, do something about it. Right? If all politicians are corrupt and dishonest and Republicans and Democrats are all the same, do something about it. Right? If all women are feminists and they're impossible and they're difficult and they're, they believe all these wrong-headed ideas that make them just impossible to live with, do something about it, right? Like find one and win her over and convince her to not be that way. Like, come on. You know, another area that this I think is relevant is with regards to churches. And I, you know, I was talking with another guy that I work with. And JD, forgive me if you're listening. I don't think you'll be upset that I'm using you as an illustration. I think you'll say, yeah, whatever. You'll shrug, you'll roll your eyes. But I was talking with JD, and I you know, I had a call out Saturday with uh, regards to a triac actuator that was not working properly on our regen gas heater. And so I'm trying to troubleshoot it. It's not working properly. Ended up having to swap it out. 
and just making conversation. He was helping me. Thank you for that, by the way. You, you made that go quicker, and I was able to get home sooner and enjoy my weekend. I'm working with JD, and he's just making conversation. You know, hey, how's your weekend going so far, and, and all that. And I said, well, we actually had a membership class for this church we've been attending, and uh, that was actually what we did this morning. He said, oh, interesting. And uh, I said, yeah, no, it was good. And we've been going there for about a year. And we feel like we should understand, you know, more about what they believe and the history of the church and where they stand on things. And and we're considering joining because, you know, if this is where we should be, then we want to be all in. He said, yeah, you know, I had a really bad experience with church when I was younger. And there were a lot of corrupt people at the church who were leaders in the church. And he didn't say specifically, I'm assuming they were elders or deacons or the pastor or whatever. And they were very strict, and they were, you know, moral busybodies, and yet they were corrupt in their business dealings outside of church, and they didn't see a problem with that, and nobody called them on it. And I just figured, you know what? Nah, right? Like, I'm not even going to go, and I haven't been back since. And so I talked to them a little bit, and I said, well, listen, I've had bad experiences with church as well. I've had bad experiences confronting pastors which were engaged in bad behavior, right? One pastor was, uh, it turned out, having an affair with a married woman in the church. I didn't know that at the time, but I was seeing other signs that there was something not right. There was something amiss. And so I confronted him on it. I wrote a little letter. I said, here's the qualifications for an overseer and a deacon that Paul writes to Timothy and to Titus. I don't feel confident that you meet these requirements. Can you help me with that? Can you explain, maybe if I'm misunderstanding these passages, or if I'm misunderstanding the situation, maybe I'm under an impression that is not correct. Can you help me? And we met, we talked. It basically boiled down to yeah, maybe there was a little more information I didn't have on some points, but on other points, it didn't matter to him. He didn't care. He had invested a lot of time and attention in becoming a pastor, and he didn't think it would be fair for him to just throw all that out, that that would all go to a waste. And so basically he was just going to be a pastor whether or not he was qualified anymore to be a pastor. So we left. We stopped going to that church. And then he goes around, he takes my letter, and he starts showing people around the church and bad-mouthing me. And I find out about this after we've left. And all of a sudden, you know, we're a newly married couple with a newborn baby boy, and I'm trying to find work, and I'm trying to get established. And all of a sudden, we've got people that think I'm bad news because I wrote this letter to the pastor. Rightly so. I, I was in the right. I, I did the right thing by calling him out on these things. And he ended up leaving, not so terribly awful, long later. It was a couple of years, but he was gone when these things came out, when it became clear that he was having an affair. And so I had a bad experience. And I tell my friend and coworker, JD, about this. I said, you know, we didn't go for a few years. And then I realized as a father, as a husband, I have a responsibility to get us back at church. And would it have been right for me to just camp out in this idea that all churches are the same, all pastors are the same, and it's just a matter of time before I see something that's not correct and I speak up on it and I get abused in church. Would that have been okay? Would that have been the right thing to do? Well, no. Even if there was some truth to it, even if there's a lot of very bad trends in most churches these days, even if pastors are imperfect people at best and sometimes corrupt people at worst, that would not have been an okay place for me to just stay for the rest of my life. Because maybe just maybe if there is corruption in some churches, and if there is just flat imperfection because we're still works in progress, and that's why we need grace, and that's why we need one another coming alongside and building one another up, encouraging one another 
spurring one another on to good works, good deeds, faithfulness, remembrance of what God's word says and who God is and who God's called us to be, why he saved us, what he saved us to and from. Moral equivalence, when we camp out on these overly simplistic dismissals that, oh, everybody, everybody's corrupt, right? Republicans, Democrats, it's all the same. All churches are corrupt. All pastors are corrupt. They're all hypocrites. All women are the same. They're all just feminists. They're all just impossible. They all just want to work and have a career and run their husbands and be empowered and all of this. If we camp out on that, here's what happens. We don't get married. We don't lead our wives lovingly. We don't have children and then raise them up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. We don't get plugged into a church and we don't help and encourage people who, yes, are imperfect to be more and more faithful, to more productivity and and fruitfulness in Christ. We don't address corruption in our government. We don't address corruption in our institutions by which our policies and our laws derive their power, their authority. In the United States of America, unless this voter fraud thing is legit and it's been going on a lot longer than we think, we elect our representatives. They do things on our behalf. They're accountable to us. And if as people who are accountable to us, they're not hearing anything from us. We're, we're checking out. We're saying, well, yeah, they're all corrupt and there's nothing to be done about it. It can't be helped. And we let them be corrupt and we don't do anything about it because they're all the same and it's just the way that it is. And I don't have time for that. Then we end up with a corrupt government. We end up with a government of abusive people, of tyrants, egomaniacs, immoral people, perverse people who rape, pillage, and plunder their own people and other people and send us off to rape, pillage, and plunder other people. And is that okay? Is that right? Or is that a convenient excuse for us to neglect our responsibility to be wise instead of foolish, to be virtuous rather than vicious, to believe the truth rather than falsehoods, to pursue righteousness because God is holy, because God is righteous instead of wickedness? A man reaps what he sows. God is not mocked. Moral equivalence is a convenient way of checking out of that whole thing, that whole process, that whole difficulty. It's a convenient way of being unfruitful, of being self-indulgent. It's a convenient excuse for being a coward, really. If we say, uh, truth, what is truth? Then before we know it, we're condemning innocent men. Now, Jesus is the only perfectly innocent man. And yet we know from the text that there are other people who are innocent of specific things for which they're accused. And if we're okay with them being punished wrongly, when we have the opportunity to speak up on their behalf, God has a problem with that, and he tells us he has a problem with that. If we say there's no distinction between an abuser and abused person, God knows better. I mean, we can come up with whatever self-justifying, convenient excuse we like, but God knows better, and he will repay each man according to his deeds, we read in Proverbs 24. So the final point that I want to get to is the question of do we give some types of bad behavior or bad behavior from certain people and groups a pass for the purpose of either advancing or protecting our interests? And this question <clears throat> really gets at motives. Only the good Lord knows for sure what your motives are, what my motives are. Sometimes I think I don't even know what my own motives are. Sometimes I really have to puzzle that out and ask, am I doing this right thing for the right reasons? Am I doing the right thing at all? Is this the right thing or is it the wrong thing? because I'm being self-serving, because I'm being selfish, because I'm being all about me, 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 me. But when I see other people saying things that are untrue, 
in a malicious way, in a slanderous way, when I see them scheming to manipulate and deceive and defraud other people, to hurt and abuse other people, do I give a pass to that when it's certain people? Do I overlook it when it's certain groups of people? And a perfect example of this would be if my children are misbehaving and there's a conflict between my children and somebody else's children. My children do something that they ought not to do and I make excuses for them. Meanwhile, the other person's child does the same thing and I jump down their throats. You really need to get a handle on your kids. Start being a parent. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait, 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 wait. Why am I doing that, right? I'm not loving my neighbor as I love myself. I'm not being a particularly good parent myself and I'm not being very loving to that other parent. I need to not do that, right? If I would be upset with them when their kid does it, I need to be taking my kid in hand. Or I need to not be upset with them. If I would not be upset for my kid to do this thing and I'm upset with them because their kid's doing it, that's a problem. And why am I doing that? If I see my wife getting along with some other guy's wife or not, I see them in conflict and my wife is in the wrong. And I always just take my wife's side of things, even if it's not the correct side, even if she's in the wrong. And I don't take my responsibility as a husband and the head of my home seriously. I don't say to my wife, well, you know what? I think you're being a little unreasonable here. And here's why. You know, I might say that privately. I might say that off to the side. But if I'm not willing to say that, if I give my wife a pass when she's misbehaving, I'm extra critical when other people, when other men are not saying something to their wives, when their wives are misbehaving, what is that? Right? Why am I doing that? Is that right? Is that good? Is that fair? No. I hear people say this with regards to political parties where you say Democrats commit fraud and they lie and they deceive and we're upset about that. And so if there's any measure of fraud or dishonesty or deceit in the Republican Party, let's say from Donald Trump, we have absolutely got to hold our people accountable. We've got to have them abide by these standards that we're holding the Democrats to. And that's correct. But, but it's also a low-cost proposition in terms of what kind of abuse are we going to receive if we do that? If we always police our own ranks extra hard because there's no cost there, really, and we don't hold our opponents to account because there will be a high cost, because they're going to be absolutely vicious. They're going to destroy us. In some cases, they'll dox you. They'll release your address to the public. They'll release to the public where your kids go to school. That happened in Michigan with two Republican members of a county commission that was going to certify the results of the election. They initially said, well, you know what? There's a lot of discrepancies we don't feel like we could certify these results just yet. There needs to be an investigation. There needs to be an audit. Next thing you know, this Democrat is going online. And he's announcing where they live, where their kids go to school, and implying it'd be a shame if something were to happen to your family. If we are not investigating these allegations of fraud by Democrats, by a coordinated cabal of Democrats across the country, if we're not investigating that as vigorously as we would hold our own to account, I think we are doing a disservice to truth and justice and that we are perhaps approaching that issue, that opportunity, that dilemma, that conflict from the standpoint of advancing or protecting our interests. I think that's what it is. I think of somebody that I know whose name I will not give because this would or should embarrass them. Somebody I know who owns a business. And I know that in his business, his clientele, 
might be progressive. They might be conservative. If he says nothing about politics, the conservatives will keep on doing business with him. They'll keep coming back. If he speaks up and he says, these are the things that I believe, this is what I think is right, this is what I think is wrong, the progressives will absolutely boycott his business. And so what does he do? He just shuts up. He just doesn't go there. He just doesn't talk about it. And in that way, we lose. In that way where we are extra vigorous in our calls for accountability and high standards and integrity and virtue. And somebody's got to be absolutely freaking perfect to meet our qualifications, to get our support. And if there's even a suspicion of impropriety, even an allegation, even a false allegation, even a slander against somebody, we immediately abandon them. We immediately throw them to the wolves. We immediately stop supporting them. We want to be as far away from them as possible. We don't have any idea who they are. I never knew them. And then when there are real substantive, pervasive evidences, testimonies, reasons to believe that the opposition is corrupt, that they're malicious, that they're cheating, that they're lying, that they're even murdering sometimes, that they're the party of murder, they're the party of abortion, for crying out loud and God have mercy, if they're willing to make excuses for abortion when it's supposedly for the life and health and well-being of the mother, the happiness of the mother, she's got to finish her college degree. She's got to live life. She's got to enjoy being a young woman. She can't be burdened and, and bogged down with a child right now. They're the party. The Democrats are the party of murder. They're the party of sanitizing the shedding of innocent blood and subsidizing it with your money, with my money, and spreading this corruption across the, not just the country, across the world. They go into other countries and promote that mother should murder child if it's convenient. And we make excuses for that. And some of us, like John Piper and Tim Keller, say that somebody being boastful is just as bad. It's every bit as bad. It's, in fact, it's worse. It's worse. It's worse. Quite frankly, quite honestly, that to me reeks of self-interest and saving our own necks. That reeks of doing a disservice to the truth and to justice and to our responsibility. We're basically saying like Pontius Pilate, truth, what is truth? Your truth, my truth, what are we talking about? What does it matter? We're never gonna get anywhere anyways. Stop throwing good attention and resources after bad. There's an opportunity cost here to investing ourselves in that fight. Just give it to them. The sooner we give it to them, the sooner we can get on with the persecution, the sooner we can prove what good Christians we are by being persecuted, by our wives and our children being brutally murdered in front of us or taken from us and educated by somebody else who's going to teach them up in the way that they should not go. The sooner we can get on with that, the sooner we can have Jesus come back, the better. Hmm. <laughs> is that a real reason? Or is that a pious sounding cover for the fact that there would be a cost right now, right here, if we were to say that is wrong and it needs to stop right now, right here. It needs to stop. It's partiality. It's partiality. It's not loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. Proverbs is replete with compare and contrast between wisdom and folly, between righteousness and wickedness. If you read Ecclesiastes and you don't get all the way to the end, you think it's vanity of vanities, right? That's where a lot of Christians that I'm talking with, particularly in Colorado, that's where they've camped out. It's like, it's like they're the beginning of Ecclesiastes without the end of Ecclesiastes. And they look at all this, and that's, the, that's their final statement is vanity of vanities, chasing after the wind. And I'm so frustrated by that. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out a way 
to reason with that kind of fatalism. Because Solomon, in all of his wisdom, does not camp out there. He doesn't conclude with, you know, we should just be foolish because there's, there's, I mean, the same event happens to the both, right? The same thing happens to the wise man as happens to the foolish. The same thing happens, the same event happens, death happens to the poor man and to the rich, to the righteous man and the wicked man. So what does it matter? Who cares? Who cares if you're wealthy? or if you're wise, or if you're righteous. Who cares? You're going to die anyway. That's not the end of the story, particularly where Solomon factors in at the end, God, God made you, and God's paying attention, and God is a rewarder of those who do what is right. And there is a benefit to being wise rather than foolish because it honors God to be wise. There is a benefit to righteousness, whether you're thanked for it or you're persecuted for it, Because God, and so I think of what Jesus says. He says, do not fear man who can only kill you and then has nothing more that he can do to you. Fear God, because God can kill the body and throw the soul into hell. I think about where we read in Proverbs that the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in Yahweh is safe. And we need to remember that. We need to think about that. We need to think about that in light of truth and not just general truth, Not just, you know, ah, yes, it's sunny today, or ah, yes, you know, I live in a house. Like things that are factually correct, but the truth, the truth about God, the truth about human nature, the truth when it pertains to justice and mercy and righteousness and wisdom, we need to be about the truth, Jesus Whoever hears these words and abides in them is like a wise man. Wait a second, Jesus. Are you saying it's better to be a wise man? Well, yeah, if you like your house not being blown over on top of you, knocked down by a storm because you built it on sin. If you, I mean, if you like that, I would encourage you to be wise. Yeah, yeah, that's why there's wisdom literature. Yeah, a wise man is the man who listens to the words that Jesus spoke and taught, his commands, and abides in them, lives by them, abides in them. That means remain. That that means you stay there. That means you camp out on the truth about how we treat people, how we relate to God, how we perceive ourselves, the way we talk, the way we walk, the way we work, the way we play, the way we learn, the way we relate, all of it. So anyway, with that, I think we need to stop drawing moral equivalents. We need to not act surprised that there is such a thing as lies, deceit, manipulation, There is no new thing under the sun. We need to be about the truth. So with that, I hope that the things that I said today were true. If you find, as a fact checker, independent or otherwise, that anything that I said was not factual or it was not true, please let me know. You can write to me at garrettmullet at gmail.com. That's G-A-R-R-E-T-T-M-U-L-L-E-T at gmail.com. I am deleting my Facebook, by the way. I have already deleted my Twitter account. I'm getting off of Twitter and Facebook because the truth is a value to me. And I am tired of being a party to not just the way they manipulate me. I think I have the spirit of discernment. I have a spiritual gift of discernment. And so I don't fall for it. But so long as I stay, I'm a party to them doing this to other people. And I can't operate within their system anymore. It's too important that we get away from these liars and these deceivers and these manipulators of people because they're trying to destroy us. They're trying to use us for their own ends, for their own gratification, 
And uh, I love you too much to continue to be a part of that uh, where you think, oh, well, it's not so bad because Garrett's still here. No, it's time for us to get out. So you won't find me in those places anymore uh, here shortly, day after tomorrow, on my 14th anniversary with my wife. Uh, that's actually when I'll be deleting my Facebook. You can find me on Mayway, MeWe, or Parlor, uh, or you can email me, GarrettMullet at gmail.com. But uh, in any event, thank you for listening. I hope this was a benefit to you. I hope it honored God. I hope it loved my neighbors. I love myself. These are things that I believe. And uh, loving you, I should share them with you because I think it would benefit you to believe these things as well. So anyway, be well. Thank you for listening. God bless.